Well, good morning, Church of the City. I am very excited to be back with you for week two of our vision series. You can tell we're in another new space uh, this week. You'll be seeing more of this space, though. We're in Royal City Mission in downtown Guelph. They have been very generous with this space and letting us record here. So we'll probably record here most weeks for the fall. So you'll get to know this space. Uh, You'll get a little bit familiar with it. So just a couple of things to make you aware of this morning, and I have to ask for your grace again, because similar to last week, we are so close on a couple of details uh, for actually two events. So I'm just going to give you uh, a little bit of a teaser for both of these things. The first is that in the very near future, we are going to gather as a church for a night of worship, singing together something we haven't been able to do in a long time. I am really excited about this. We are just firming up uh, date and location, so stay tuned for that, Uh, but start warming up your voice because very soon we'll be gathering together to sing. The other is for university and college students. We as a church care about you deeply. In a regular year, we would take an opportunity in the fall to get you all together and give you a little bit of a sense of what Church of the City is about, give you some food. We still wanted the opportunity to connect, although it's going to have to look different this year. And so we've got something in the works uh, that will allow us to do that to connect with you, to give you a little bit of information about Church of the City. And so uh, we will get that information to you when we firm up those details about an opportunity to, uh, to get together and for you to hear more about us as a church. Now I'm going to turn it over to Sarah Evans, who is going to lead us in prayer this morning. As we prepare our hearts to pray, I'd like to offer a prayer called the preparatory prayer. And it's like exactly that just prepares our hearts to come before the Father as we pray. And this is something that I was given several years ago and I've used most days in my own prayer life just to prepare my heart and bring myself before the Father. So let's pray together. We bow before the Father who made us. We bow before the Son who saved us. We bow before the Spirit who guides us. In love and adoration, we give you our lips. We give our hearts. We give our minds. We give our strength. We bow and adore thee, sacred three, the ever one, the Trinity, amen. Let's join together and pray for the Naismith family. Lord, just as you invited your disciples to come away and rest a little while, so you are calling the Naismith family to do the same. You know how much they have poured their lives and hearts into your kingdom work and how you have provided and given them this time to come away with you and rest. So by your spirit, guide Matt and Andrea to the rest you have awaiting for them so that they can truly commune with you. We ask that you replenish and renew them in all the places in their lives where they have grown weary, disheartened, 
discouraged and are in need of being nourished and uplifted. We thank you for your mercy renewed each day and that over this time of pulling away, that they would enter into that deeply, that they would discover the more of you. Just as that picture in Genesis where you hovered, your spirit hovered over the waters to bring about creation and new life. We, we ask that you would hover over their house, bringing new life, creating something anew in them. Pray that you would give them a heart to receive these blessings and eyes to take notice of these things. And may they both sense your delight, even in this this seemingly unproductive time, which I'm sure is especially hard for Pastor Matt, that you would just love them for who they are and not because of what they, they do for you. And as they have carried the mantle of leadership for all these years, restore a new sense of vision and passion for your church that is totally and completely aligned with your vision and passion for your church. And may Matt walk into that by your grace and confidence. Amen. Let's pray for schools and parents and our kids. What a time this has been, Lord. Something all of us would never have been able to imagine a year ago. You see the uncertainty the loss. You see the grief that is settling in for both us as parents and our kids and even teachers in the way that they've done things in the past and and known. And it's all manifesting itself in different ways. But those of us who believe, we know, we know that you are faithful and good through the ages. But yet, Lord, we find ourselves in need of your help in the present moment. Sometimes we can ask, where are you in all of this? We need to see. Some of us are just trying to make it through the day. And our kids are adjusting to so many new things at school. And they're also experiencing a loss of what was, navigating a new norm, and not even sure how to express it. It is unsettling. And sometimes for us as parents, it's hard to uphold our kids when we ourselves are struggling and when we often feel like we have nothing left to give. Lord, we need an extra measure of strength, patience, and ability to be present with our kids. So by your grace and mercy, we ask for these things. But if we're honest before you, God, Some of us need our faith restored in a world that sometimes we can be drowned out by the hopelessness. We remember that you have been faithful through the ages. And we just ask that you help us to see it in our own life. Point out how you have been good to us, how you have loved us, and how you can restore things that are lost and often creating something that is even better than it was before. 
So in the grief that we feel, along with our kids, we let go of the life that we were maybe trying to create and open our hands to you, you who are the resurrection and the life, knowing full well that you bring new life and that you want to do a new thing. As parents, and on behalf of our kids, we say, we are open to the life you want to create in us. Help us to perceive it. And as parents, involve our children in it for your namesake. Would we as families enter more deeply to trust that you are a God who is faithful and raise up a generation of children who have tasted and seen your goodness. Let's pray for our vision series. Let's pray for the Naismiths who have stepped away for this season. We also uphold the Adam family as they step into a new way and role, carrying a different mantle of leadership in this time. You have given both Sam and Spencer hearts after you. We thank you for that, God. And as Spencer brings us the vision series, would our hearts be reminded of your bigger story of rescue and redemption? And would we, as your church, be moved in such a way that we can also see our part in that story? Your word is not stagnant, Lord. It is living and active. So may we, as your church, respond in such a way to your living word that it would be sent forth by your people who are willing to join in with what you are continuing to do in this world. Yes, Lord, we are we're so far away from your standard that you still seek us out and allow us to join in with your continued unfolding story that is manifested through the church. So I ask for a specific blessing for Spencer in this time, that his faith would increase and be strengthened as he prepares for this series. You who called, who call us are faithful and by your spirit, may he draw close to you and know your heart and be able to bring it to your church, to us at Church of the City. And may we as the church be not just listeners, but a people who are willing to respond and live out what we hear. And though we are scattered by the circumstances of our day, we are still your church. Your spirit still dwells with us, your holy temple, all of us built into it. So God, may we be a temple where you find your home. And in the words of Paul in Ephesians, I pray that all of us will begin to understand the incredible greatness of his power for us who believe in him. Amen. Lastly, let's pray for us as we seek to give back to the church. Lord, when you ask us uh, to give, you also ask us to give our first fruits 
and out of a grateful heart. And I must admit, <laughs> this is not an easy task sometimes to open our hands uh, to give, but then also with a grateful heart. But when you require us to do something, it's for the benefit of the greater good, but also for the formation of our own hearts in it because you love us. And many of us in the church have a more natural gift of giving. So I ask that they model for us what this looks like and sharpen those of us who struggle. And in our struggle, Lord, may your grace be given that they, this may be something that becomes easier to do. And Lord, you know and see how the enemy lurks in this particular area where we become so easily deceived by the comfort and security that money brings, creating an attachment. We hold on to it so tightly. But you have more for us, Lord. So we ask for strength to guard ourselves against the deceits of the enemy and also ask that as we, as we, as we do this, that we be, have a deepening knowledge of you, Jesus, and make decisions with our giving, with our money, according to your ways. And that through the act and discipline, um, that we would be blessed. May we be a church, a people who don't give the enemy ground for the love of money. So in your name, Jesus, by the power of your mighty hand, help us open our hands and surrender what we have and give back to you and seek your kingdom first. Amen. Just a short closing prayer adapted from Acts 4, verse 31. Holy Spirit, we ask that in our worship service today, you would fill us with your power so that when we leave and go out into the world, we may speak the word of God with boldness and effectiveness. And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, hello again. As we said earlier, this is week two of our 2020 vision series. And I wanted to start with a little bit of uh, background about me. I've talked about this before, but if you're newer to our community, maybe you haven't heard me say this before. I, I spent a couple of summers tree planting in Northern Ontario. Tree planting is, it's a unique experience to say the least. Generally, it's pretty interesting. Uh, but you may or may not know if the average tree planter can put in anywhere from a thousand to four, five, you know, on, an, on a crazy day, six, seven thousand trees in a day. And so you probably won't be surprised to hear that some days the monotony of throwing a shovel into the ground that many times can bring you to a bit of a breaking point, particularly on those days where the black flies, the mosquitoes, the deer flies are just creating that wonderful symphony around your head. It can, it can be demoralizing. And it's particularly hard if you don't have a bigger sense of why you're out there. 
for me, it was my second year of tree planting that was really the hardest. Uh, it was just hard mentally and emotionally for a whole bunch of reasons. But there were really two things, I would say, that kind of kept me going through that year. The first was this sense that I was a part of something big. I looked for some statistics this week. Now, the clearest uh, one that I could find was for the year 2018, and I tree planted years before that. But in 2018, 68 million trees were planted in our province alone. That astounded me. I knew it was millions, but I did not realize it was that big of a number. And the reality that I was a part of something big, you know, most of those 68 million would have been planted by, or at least funded by companies who had already forested areas of Ontario and were uh, paying to have them reforested or replanted. But the sense that I was a part of something so big for our economy, for the environment was significant to me. But far more significant than that was the fact that in my second year of tree planting, I was not just out there, you know, saving money for the heck of it. I was actually working towards buying a ring, an engagement ring for, uh, to ask Samantha to marry me. And so that gave me a sense of purpose, a bigger sense of why I was there. And there's a similar danger, friends, if we don't have a wider view of the gospel, if we don't have an expansive view of what the gospel is. See, last week we talked about gospel power. What effect does the gospel have on me as an individual? What, what transformation does it work in me? And I hope that we painted a pretty big, expansive, hopeful picture of what the gospel does in us. But if that's all we ever focus on, what the gospel does in me, you know, you won't be surprised to hear we can become a little bit inward focused, a little bit self-focused. And that can have all kinds of negative effects. We could become discouraged if we feel like maybe we aren't progressing fast enough in the Christian life, or that's particularly prominent sometimes when we look to Christians on either side of us who seem to be doing better than we are. Uh, it could lead to being a little bit lethargic with no sense of urgency. You know, just we have this sense, well, yeah, I've been saved from the penalty of my sin, and yes, sin still has some power over me, but, you know, it's a daily process. It's a, a, a slow sort of day in and day out kind of thing, and, you know, I don't need to be too upset about it. Or lastly, and, you know, clearly this, this isn't an exhaustive list, but lastly, you know, just focusing on the gospel's effect on me can, can lead to a kind of spiritual bloatedness as we continue to fill ourselves with knowledge and information about the gospel that never works itself out in our lives, never, never gets pushed out into daily life. And so this morning... Our task, in some ways, is the same as last week. I hope that we can put down roots into the truths of who God is and who we are. But this morning, I want to not just focus on what does the gospel mean for me, but what does the gospel mean for the world? I hope we can take a wide, expansive view of what the gospel does, what it's been doing, what God has been up to through all of space and time. So before we jump into that, let's take a moment. I was so excited about the start of our vision series last week that I forgot to do this. Uh, but this is something that we do uh, every morning that we're gathered together for a reunion. So let's take a moment, pause, think about how you're feeling, 
check in with your emotions and invite Jesus into that place with you. And then we'll continue on. Okay. A good place, I think, to begin to try and remind ourselves of just how big and expansive the gospel is, is with that definition that I gave last week, actually. So I'll read that again for us. It says, the gospel is the good news of God rescuing and restoring creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So as you hear that definition, we'll actually have it on the screen so you can see it. As you see this definition, what would you say, looking at it, is, is the purpose of the gospel? What does this definition suggest is the purpose of the gospel? You'd probably say to see the rescue and restoration of creation, right? And, and that's definitely true. But I'd actually say that that's the same purpose that God has been about for all of creation. He's been up to that, this purpose for a very long time. And we might actually think of it as God's purpose and the gospel's purpose is to establish God's rule and reign in every corner of creation. And in so doing, to bring himself great glory. And now you say, okay, how do we know that God has been up to that purpose for all of creation? Well, let's look at the story. Let's go back to Genesis. Genesis 1 tells us that God created everything out of nothing. And as he's creating, he's looking and saying, this is good. This is good. But there's a culmination. There's an, an apex to creation. We read about it in Genesis 1 starting at verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Unique, a unique moment in the creation story. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the heaven, birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created a good world over which he would rule. And he invited human beings to be caretakers over that creation. He invited us to exercise dominion on his behalf within that kingdom. But then just a few pages later in your Bible, in Genesis 3, it seems like this grand project that God had begun may, may have come to a crashing end. I'm talking, of course, about the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden. And in that story, the caretakers rebel against the Creator. And through the course of that rebellion, the creation is marred. It's, it's scarred, it's soiled. And finally, the relationship between God and his creation is fractured. We perhaps see this most, most poignantly in Genesis chapter three, 
verses 8 to 10. It says this, And they heard, they being Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God visiting his creation, perhaps checking in with those caretakers. What do they do? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Quite a turn in the story. It seems like maybe this project that God has begun has ended. We question maybe that's the end of the story. But again, just a few pages later in our Bibles, we discover that God's plan to reign over his creation and to partner with us hasn't been thwarted at all. It is still at work. His purposes are still being accomplished and they still extend to the whole world. See, God begins a relationship with one man. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, listen to this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so it's at this point that if we step back a little bit, we begin to wonder if God actually might have a plan that supersedes, that rises above human successes and failures, human fickleness. And we begin to wonder actually if this story, if the scriptures, uh, you know, isn't a collection of small stories somehow loosely held together, but one big massive, beautiful story. And in fact, actually, a nation would come from Abraham, the nation of Israel, and God would send that nation prophets when they forgot the fact that they were a part of a big story to remind them the truths of who God is and who they were. And those prophets would remind them that they are a part of something big. Let me read for you one example. Isaiah Chapter 46, verses 8 to 10. Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord here. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. And so, when you and I do take that step back and we realize that this is one big story, two other realities, two other realizations ought to hit us like a wave. And they are these. First, we realize that this story encompasses all of space and time. In other words, nothing has happened in human history or will happen that is outside the bounds of this story. 
And then a second realization quickly follows from the first, and it's this. We realize that the story is not over. It's still going on, and you and I are a part of it. We're in it, friends. Two uh, Christian writers and thinkers talk about this, Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew, in, in a book called Living at the Crossroads. I want to read to you what they write. Quote, Thus the gospel is public truth, universally valid, true for all peoples and all of human life. It's not merely for the private sphere of religious experience. It's not about some otherworldly salvation postponed to some indefinite future. It is God's message about how he is at work to restore his world and all of human life. It tells us about the goal of all history and thus claims to be the true story of the world. That's big, friends. And if that's true, if this story is universally valid, true for all of human life, then we ought to understand it well. Amen? So let's recap for a moment. This is one big story. And something you've probably, if you've been a part of Church of the City for a while, something you've probably heard Matt or myself or one of our other teachers say is that when we look at this story and we step back from a little bit, recognizing that it is one big story, we can actually kind of see it in terms of four acts, if you will. Those are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But though this story can be thought of in four acts, there is definitely an epicenter, a focus of the story. There's a hero to this story, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the hero of this story. The whole thing points towards him. Jesus himself understood this. There's this great moment in the Gospels, in the the Gospel of Luke, where This is after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he encounters two travelers on the road. They don't realize that it's Jesus that they're speaking to. And they're trying to come to grips with everything that's happening. They know Jesus has died, but they're hearing these rumors that perhaps he's come back to life. And they're just trying to wrap their minds around what's going on. And Jesus encounters them there on the road. And here's what it says, Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, "'Oh, foolish ones!' and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus is saying, don't you see, this was the plan all along. Luke continues, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, friends, is the hero of this story. He is the king of the kingdom. And so it might be easy at this point for us to exhale and say, phew, Jesus is the hero of this story. Thank goodness he's got this. And he is. And he does. But just like God did back in the garden, there's this pesky reality that we can't seem to get away from that our story's hero doesn't seem to want to do his work alone. He invites us to participate in it with him. 
And he's clear about this, friends, all throughout his earthly life and ministry. Let's, let's look at the beginning. Matthew chapter four, the calling of some of Jesus' first disciples. Let me read this for you, starting at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now I want us to talk for a moment about Jesus' statement uh, in this little moment in the Gospels. It's a very short one, but I think there's a lot of truth contained in it. What does Jesus say? I think we can break his statement down into three parts. First he says, follow me. Notice that Jesus makes an invitation, an invitation for these two men to join in his life. They might not realize the full extent of the invitation in that moment. We can know it now, but he makes an invitation to join him. He says, follow me and I will make you. Jesus is saying that by joining with him, they will experience some kind of transformation. Follow me and I will make you. We talked about this last week, that when we join ourselves to Jesus, the gospel transforms us. Things change. But he's not done. Follow me and I will make you what? He says, fishers of men. In other words, the same transformation that will happen in them, Jesus wants them to bring about in others. The way I often say this in pilot groups and elsewhere is any transformation that God does in you, he wants to do through you. And then Jesus is singing the same song at the very end of his earthly ministry. The final words that Matthew records in his gospel to Jesus' disciples are this. You've likely heard these words before. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king of this kingdom. Right? It goes on. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The hero, friends, of this story calls us to join him in saving the world. The reality is no less significant than that. No less dramatic, no less important. The Apostle Paul understood this, friends, and he was often reminding believers of the commissioning that Jesus had given them. One moment is uh, Ephesians chapter 2, a letter to followers of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. Here's how Paul says it there, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul's clarifying, you are not the hero of this story. You did not work this salvation for yourself. It's God who did it. But he goes on, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the hero. But he's not done. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus is the hero of this story, but he invites us into the saving work that he's doing in the world. He invites us into the process of rescuing and restoring creation, friends. And so 
Over the rest of our vision series, we'll talk about what it means to be people living in light of this story. See, the story, the gospel, gives us new identities, and we'll be exploring how do we live in light of those new identities. For this morning, all I want us to do, friends, is to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves enough to admit that we are not the heroes of the story, that we are not the kings or queens of this kingdom. There's this unfortunate reality that too often, if you were to listen to a Christian tell their story, the the Christianese word we use is their testimony, and you were to ask someone who had just listened to them tell their story, if you were to ask them the question, hey, who would you say was the hero of the story that was just told? Far too often that person would probably have to say, well, it sounded like it was John or it was Sally who was telling the story. They, you know, had lots of problems and then uh, they found Jesus and put their life back together. Jesus isn't the hero the way we tell our story far too often. He's some sort of helpful sidekick. Friends, we are not the heroes of our story. It's Jesus. He's the hero. He's the king of the kingdom. And we need to humble ourselves enough to live in light of that. And perhaps today is the first time that you're willing to admit that you are not the hero of your story, that you cannot save yourself, that you need a hero. You don't want to be king of your kingdom anymore. God has been writing this story for all of human history, friends. One where he's king over creation, but he invites us into this story and gives us tangible, vibrant, significant roles to play. Will you step into that role? Will you accept that commission? This is going to reshape your whole life. So what I want us to do now, friends, is pray a prayer. You can see that I've stood up, and I would ask you to stand as well. Some of you will find this a little bit annoying, and others of you might find it downright awkward, and that's okay. Would you please stand with me? We're going to pray a prayer, and we're actually going to engage our bodies in this prayer. See, I think sometimes when all we do is think about gospel truth, uh, it can stay in our heads. But sometimes when we engage our bodies, like when we have the opportunity to sing together, uh, things sink into our hearts in a new way. So stand. You're going to see a prayer on the screen in the moment and pray it with me. But before that, I want you to raise your hands in a posture of surrender like this. And let's pray. I choose to hold up my hands as a symbol of surrender. My life is not about me. I surrender to your lordship. I surrender my preferences, prejudices, and position to you. I surrender my fears, finances, friends, and family to you. And now, friends, I would invite you to hold out your hands in a posture of invitation and pray this with me. I choose to hold my hands forward as a symbol of mission. I want to live for something greater than me. I want to embrace your kingdom mission to the lost, last, least, and lonely, to the poor, powerless, privileged, and persecuted.
Amen.